Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And don't forget to send us those questions that we try every week to take time as much as we can week after week. Uh, that's a bad sentence, I'm sorry, but please send us your questions. There's three ways uh, that we, you can send them. One is an email, info at grove.church is the address. Make sure to put in the, po- the subject line a podcast question, uh, or you can direct message us on social media. We have the Facebook, which we are the Grove Church in Washington State. DM us there, or we have an Instagram page. Our handle is the Grove CH. Uh, you can go ahead and send us a message there through the DMs as well. Either way, the questions will get to us so we can answer them as much as we can. All right. Well, this week we are starting up everyone's favorite book yes, of the Bible. But for clarity, we're not doing it in December. That's true. So not during Christmas, which is a good thing. If you don't know, listeners, we have this thing on staff where pretty much our only big filter of a Bible reading, because we want to go through the whole Bible in a year. <laughs> That's so true. The the major filter is you, it can't just be going through like the Old Testament and the New Testament in order because we don't like ending the year with Revelation. Yeah, we don't like doing Christmas time. But during Revelation. Thanksgiving time, we're going to read Revelation. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, Revelation is, uh, it's not only the last book of the Bible, it is the last written as well. So Ooh. it's not just, you know, it's not just the last in order. It's also almost certainly the last one that was written down. Um, early tradition dates it to the end of the reign of Dom- uh, Domitian. Domitian, ah, I should have. I should have remembered how to pronounce that. I knew yesterday. I just forgot. Uh, so, but this would be the mid nineties. So yeah, he's nineteen nineties. Yeah, the nineteen nineties. Uh, <laughs> the author has been mostly held to be Don, John, the disciple of Jesus. However, there Don. are Don. Uh, however, there are some differences in the Greek, leading some people to postulate that this was another John who wrote Revelation. So nope, you, false. Yeah, if you ever hear John the Elder, it's kind of talking about that. Um, you, I mean, it's it's kind of an open handed thing. I hold it's John the disciple mostly because it's. Uh, it's, it's only open-handed because someone's offered a different suggestion, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm, well, here's the thing. I say that carefully. It matters because of who wrote it and the revelation there, but at the end of the day, it's not, it doesn't impact the gospel. So My thing is usually if, if the early church fathers are pretty united on something as far as the authorship of books goes, I tend not to disagree with it just because they're closest to it. Um, and we have – I believe it's like only – 50, 60 years after it's written, we have people talking about how John wrote this. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that sounds like a little bit of a long time, but like- That's like for, one generation. Like that, that's yeah. me, how the, my dad wrote this letter. Yeah. For for um, for ancient manuscripts, that is, <laughs> that's insane. That's a really good, that's a really good indicator that that is who wrote it. Um, the big thing is, yeah, there's differences in Greek between the gospel of John and the letters of John and Revelation. Uh, the way you can describe, the way you can explain it away is a couple different ways. Um, number one, if John's using a different scribe, so if he's um, not writing all these things down himself, but if he's dictating it and he's using someone different, that can be it. Um, the other thing, and this actually like really makes sense to me, is that the Greek is a little bit more messy in Revelation, particularly when he's describing the visions. Um, but that also could be because he's being shown these visions and he's furiously scribbling and then he felt that he shouldn't edit them. Like he felt like, mm. I just need to, this is exactly what I saw when I saw it. I just need to transmit this exactly, um, which actually makes sense to me because there's a bunch of parts in Revelation, we'll get to some of them, where it's very clear that he can't describe what he's seeing. Like yeah. he's just, he's using... He's, he's trying to do the best he can, but he can't say like, and then it was this. He has to say it like, the, the, 
eyes were fire and like uh, is he, yeah we'll get we'll get to him. I love Revelation as far as like some of the pictures that are in there. But all that to say, um, yeah, if your if your version of Revelation isn't a picture book, then you're reading the wrong Bible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All all that to say is that we hold that it's John the disciple, the yes. same author of the Gospel of John, and then the one it, who was exiled, the one who didn't die, yeah, was boiled alive, like all that jazz. Lived. Yeah, and this would be written towards. Uh, Right at basically the end of his life. He's in exile mm-hmm. in Patmos. This is in the, the mid 90s. And so John at this point is probably in his 80s. So he's going to be a very old man. Uh, Revelation is really the only book in the New Testament that is like it. Uh, it can be classified as apocalyptic literature. It's part epistle in that John is writing to specific churches, yep. um, but he's also writing a great vision of what is to come that God has given him. Um, yeah, so the, the Revelation isn't its own category of literature. There are things like apocalyptic literature, um, particularly the back half of Daniel can also fit into this category a little bit. Um, But it's the only book in the New Testament that's like that because the the New Testament are essentially history books, letters, and revelation are the three three categories. Uh, Chapter one begins with John introducing himself and greeting the seven churches that he is writing to and relaying a vision that he has of the glorified Christ. So this one I just want to read because it's really cool. So this is in verse 10. It says, I was in the spirit, which side note is the same language that gets used in Ezekiel. When Ezekiel describes his visions, he talks about how he is taken away in the spirit. And so here, John is kind of using the same thing. Uh, But he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was whisper, uh, that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, like one, like one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, like his vo- and his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he lay his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the one, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So, I mean, right there, you can just kind of see it, right? Like, John is having, he's seeing the glorified Christ, like, almost in full glory, and he just can barely describe it. Like he's kind of just furiously scribbling like what his hair looks like and his feet um, and his eyes and what's coming out of his mouth. And he talked about how he just fell on the ground, but he's clearly, he's seeing something that he can't put into words yeah. fully, um, which I think is, 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 it's almost a more fitting picture. Not almost. I think it's a more fitting picture of the glory of God. True. Cause if you could fully describe it to our mortal minds, I think it almost is worse. I think it's almost saying that like, it's, you know what I mean? Like it, it almost yeah. cheapens it. Um, but the fact that John is just awestruck and can't even put into words what he's seeing, I think is the best, um, it's the best indicator yeah. of how holy and how glorified God is. So after this, we get the specific words to each of the seven churches. Um, so Jesus, and I, I put Jesus at the beginning because we it's remembering, these are the words of Christ 
to these churches. Yep. These are not the words of John. Yeah. So Jesus praises Ephesus for their doctrinal faithfulness, but he rebukes them for their lack of love, um, which I put is, is a convicting thought for today. <laughs> yep. Um, but yep. It, it is crazy because like, and that that one I think is one of the scariest verses in all of the Bible because he's basically saying, hey. Like you're crushing it on doctrine, you're not putting up with false teachers, um, you're doing good works, like all these different things, um, but you don't love. You've lost, you've lost love. And I think it's just like, it's, it's Paul who says, you know, without love, we're like a clinging symbol or a gong where mm -hmm. basically like no one wants to pay any attention to it. And it's, it's almost like offensive um, because we can have all these different things. We can exercise all these spiritual gifts, but if we don't love, then what's the point? And yeah. that's kind of what Ephesus has fallen into. <laughs> Uh, the next one is Jesus encourages the church at Smyrna as they will need to endure even further persecution, um, which in the one sense is great and in the other sense is a bummer where he's basically saying <laughs> yeah. like, you've, you've done a great job, you've endured. Um, hold fast. Keep it, keep it up. Yep. Yeah. Hold fast. Hold on. Uh, the next letter is, or the next section is Jesus praises Pergamum. Uh, for holding fast to the faith in spite, even in spite of living in a very difficult area. Um, however, they are rebuked for giving into some heresies. So basically they're not fully like leaving the faith, but they've let some untruth, some her heretical beliefs yep. creep in. And he's saying, no, you need to put those out as well. Uh, Jesus praises Thyatira for their acts of service and how they continuously do more. Um, and then he rebukes them for tolerating. This one's kind of, this one's very specific. It's yeah. one false prophetess in their midst that was also apparently seducing members of their church. Um, so it's not just kind of like vague, small heresies. It's one person. And yeah. he's saying, hey, like you've given her chances. You need to just remove her from, from uh, fellowship. Uh, Jesus rebukes, or as I put in my notes, rebubs for some reason, uh, but he rebukes Sardis for allowing themselves to grow complacent and to die. Um, they are commanded to remember the gospel when they first heard it, which I also think is a really convicting one yeah. today, right? Because it's basically like, I um, I think if you, were, if you were to rebuke the churches in America, I think the number one rebuke you would get is that they've grown complacent yep. uh, and kind of fat and happy. And so I think that's a very convicting thing for us is like, where, where in our lives, where in our churches have we, have we grown this way? Um, and I also just love the picture of, it's almost like a, uh, um, like something a marriage counselor would say, where it's like hmm. when, when a husband and wife are fighting, it's like, Hey, like remember back to like when you first like got together and yeah. the way that you felt, um, it's kind of like what John is saying. It's like, remember when you first heard the gospel and remember how um, how that affected you, remember how you yeah. felt and get, and get back to it. So kind of interesting. Uh, Jesus then uh, gushes over Philadelphia. Um, not obviously- The city. Yeah, you know, not not the current Philadelphia. Which As a he, Dallas Cowboys fan, heck no. Oh, that's true. I, I have nothing Can't against- stand them. I have nothing against Philadelphia. If you're in Philadelphia, I love you as a brother and sister in Christ. I can't stand the football. Fans. You guys, you guys really let me down in the World Series. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> the Astros hate the Astros, but you know, we. I, I'm sure you guys aren't very. What happy were you either. thinking? Come on. <laughs> Anyways, Mariners are gonna win next year. Um, and so, but sorry, you heard it here first. Jesus gushes over uh, the church in Philadelphia, and he says that he will exalt them for their faithfulness. So there's no rebuke there. He's just like, hey, you guys are crushing it. Way to go. Yeah. Um, and he, there's even this picture there of like the other churches kind of bowing down, which is really interesting. And so, um. Like Jesus loves what the church in Philadelphia is doing. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, Jesus rebukes the city of Laodicea for being lukewarm. Uh, again, like Sardis, they have seemingly grown complacent yeah. um, and they're just not, yeah, they're just yeah. kind of existing. They're just kind of coasting. And Jesus is like, hey, that's not what you're called to do as the church. Yeah. Well, and I, like, I look at those sometimes too. And like even, okay, the, if we look at the church at large, 
it's easy to like sit here and think about, oh, the church is growing flat and fat and complacent in America. I agree with that. I think we've become apathetic. I think um, church universally, all of us together as Christians, as um, we we have we have grown comfortable. We live in a, a wealthy country. We live in, and so there's things that that parallel the reality with which we we are facing. But the other side of it is, as a follower of Christ, there's the other layers to it too, like doctrinal faithfulness but a lack of love. Like I think I think we I think we can look at these these letters to the churches um and as Christians we have to filter lord where am i showing a lack of love? Where am i um enduring persecution will endure even more. Like there there are things that we need to be processing and and, and to take into consideration Paul's revelation uh Christ's calling and and calling up, rebuking, or loving the churches that are represented here. And I think that there's a lot of important things to, to, to navigate. And so like when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, that we can, we can make blanket statements about the church at large, um, especially in America. Uh, but Well, this is the church we know the best. It's true. But, but even then, we don't, I, I, let's be careful. Like we don't really know all the churches the best. We just have a perception or an observation sure. of the churches as best we can. Um, but my, my responsibility as a follower of Christ is is my walk with Jesus and to be obedient to what he's calling me to and not grow complacent or grow weary in doing good or to live as gospelly centric as I can and not waver from the gospel. Um, and, and how does that play out in my everyday life? I think that's one of the biggest things to take from this section is not just the, like I want, it's funny, I'm reading this. I'm like, I, I kind of want to do like, if I was in college, I kind of want to do like a deep dive into the church of Philadelphia. Like oh, yeah. what, what did they do? Like that God was so, like thankful for, like Jesus, like praise them and said, I'm going to exalt you because um, I don't want to model my life like them. But anyways, total side note, but I think it's, it's really easy. And I want to, I want us to be careful as followers of Christ today to sit back and read about these churches and yeah, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, they rebuke them. Yeah. Rebuke, but really like, God, where am I? Where am I like Ephesus or like Pergamum or like Thyatira or Sardis or all of the above? I just think there's a really important practical piece to it that i that I wrestle with as I'm reading through too. No, I think it's a great chapter point. four. Chapter four. Uh, this gives us a vision of the throne of God in heaven, uh, and you get again, you get the feeling that John can just barely describe what he's seeing. I love these passages of Revelation. I think they're just great. Uh, but this is starting in verse two. It says, "At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had happened." or that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of thun- and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, there were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and are full of eyes and around within and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne 
and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and praise, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Um, it's funny because it makes me think of Revelation song, which is like a famous, It's I think, is it a 90s or an early 2000s song? I don't remember, but it's uh, it's really good. Probably early 2000s. Early 2000s. I, I'm kind of bummed that it's fallen out of fashion a little bit, like we don't sing it as much, um, but it's it's all of the lyrics are just from Revelation. That's why it's called what it is, but it's just pictures of, of God glorified, um, and that's where... You know, the chorus begins with, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I think that's a, ah, it's a great line. I love that whole thing. But yeah, I again, stand that song. it's just really, oh, <laughs> it's, I love it's, it. It's one of the few songs I think that I'm like, you're okay. Your desire, like your angst or dislike towards running. Sure. Sure. Is my dislike towards. Just not a fan. The Revelation song. Hey, but, I get it. It's all, it's all subjective. Um, but yeah, I, I love, I love the passages of Revelation where John is being exposed to the glory of God mm-hmm. and he just can't fully put it into words. He's just having to collect quickly scribble out what's going on here. Like those angels, it's insane. Yeah. Like, like the way he's talking about them, he's just like, they're covered in eyes yeah. um, and they're flying around the throne and proclaiming the holiness of God. It's just, you, yeah, I just can't wait until. If um, you want a quick like 12 minute video intro to the book of Revelation, the Bible project, the version like reading plan, they have a, like a, a 12 minute intro. Okay. That what they do is it's it's, it's talking, but it's like uh, animated. So there's animated drawings and things like that. It's not going to be like depicting like in detail, but it's going to like because I always I've always wrestled with Revelation until I like deep dived into it. It's mm-hmm. a it's a phenomenal book. Um, but I, I actually was just looking it up as you were talking, so I made sure my sound was on mute. Uh-huh. Um, but it just it's it's a it's a like a visual kind of walkthrough for 12 minutes of revelation. So if you're listening, it's like, this is one of those like weird, like, cause it is, I'm, I'm sitting here back laughing or not laughing, but just like smiling because of the, the imagery. Um, and then I'm like, man, they need to make a pop-up book. Wait a minute, Bible project. So it's just a fun little thing that could potentially add a little bit more uh, gusto to yep. the book of revelation. So no, the Bible project, they do great stuff. They really it's, do. It's really good. Uh, but so, don't stop listening to us, please. Yeah. <laughs> so in chapter five, John has a vision of an angel searching to find someone who is worthy to open the sc- a scroll from heaven. Uh, I, I love this because essentially they're going through and they're trying to find someone who's worthy to open the scroll and it's declared no one is worthy. So John yep. weeps and he falls on his face because in all of creation, they cannot find anyone uh, who is worthy until a lamb huh. that looks like it had already been sacrificed steps forward to open the scroll. Yeah, I wonder what that's talking about. I don't even know. Yeah, it's clearly Christ. <laughs> so the, the we're, that's where we get the idea of uh, worthy is the lamb who was slain, which is the opening line Ooh. of Revelation song. Yes. So. It's a great song. Don't get me wrong. When it, when it, when we sing it in a corporate setting, I wrestle a lot with it. So there anyways. you go. All right. So eventually uh, the lamb begins to open the scroll, which leads to... It's, there's seven scrolls on it, or seven seals, sorry, on the scroll. And each time one is opened, a different event happens. So the first seal is broken, and a white horse bearing a crowned rider emerges and comes forward to conquer. And this dun, is by dun, the way, dun. if you've ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, this is where it, it comes from, right? Ooh. The second seal is broken. And a red horse whose rider was taking uh, taking peace from earth, bearing a great sword. So again, like war and uh just things that are coming. Uh, the next one is a black horse bearing a rider holding scales who has come to judge, which is like, I can't help but think of like like the Nazgul from Lord of the Rings, which is really creepy. 
uh, and then find the last horse. The fourth seal is the is the final horse, and it says uh, it's a pale horse whose rider was named Death, and Hades followed with him. Um, and if you've ever seen the movie Tombstone, <laughs> I can't help but think of there's a the scene that opens it up. Yes, where he goes, he just it says like, what was he saying? Because they shoot a priest, and he's like, he was saying, behold, there was a man on a white horse whose name was Death, and hell followed with him. And then it goes, Dung! and the title comes up, and it's Tombstone. Uh, Wyatt Earp is not the fourth. Uh, no, he's, he's not, not the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, no. but a, still a cool scene. Uh, the fifth seal is broken, and this uh, leads to all of the martyrs crying out and asking God how long before his judgment would come to the earth. And so the martyrs, uh, just as a this is going to come up a lot in Revelation. So the mm-hmm. martyrs are people who died, um, specifically were killed for uh, preaching Christ or were killed because of their faith. So it's not just the, it's not just the saints, like the, pe- the Christians who have died in the past. It's specifically people who uh, were murdered for their faith. Uh, and then the sixth seal is broken and a mighty earthquake happens that blots out the sun and it causes people to like, it talks about how like they run and hide in caves basically. So it, you get this picture of like, it's just a terrifying moment. And, and I, again, I love revelation for the pictures that it gives you um, before the seventh seal is broken. We get a little interlude and this happens again uh, with uh, I think it's the seven bowls. There's a little interlude before, between the sixth and seventh. So it's kind of an interesting choice that um, I, I was going to say an interesting choice that John makes, but he's describing the vision. So this is God, the choice that God is making in between. Uh, but before the seventh seal is broken, we see a number of people sealed away for protection. So there are 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. So there's 144,000 people in total. Um, I would say this is a symbolic number. It's not yes, saying like not a specific. There's, yeah, there's only 12,000 people in each tribe. Interesting though, uh, Dan is omitted in favor of Levi. And then Joseph Ooh. is listed instead of Ephraim. So, um, Dan, That's if you, their fault. yeah, Dan, if you remember is kind of like the, the number one apostate tribe. And so, um, he's, yeah, the tribe of Dan is not listed. And then the tribe of Levi is almost never listed because most of the time when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, we're talking about the 12 allotments of land. And remember the Levites don't have land. Yep. Their inheritance is the priesthood. And so here though, we see Levi is listed. Dan is not. And then Joseph is not one of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's his sons. So Joseph has two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. Um, but Joseph here is listed instead of Ephraim. So, and the, but Manasseh is still listed. So it's kind of interesting. It is interesting. Um, after this, John looks and sees a vast multitude of Gentiles praising the Lord and declaring his salvation. So the, the exact words is people from all nations, which I think I, I love those sections of Revelation as well. Just the idea of that, like, it's no longer the one nation. Um, it's it's all of the world, yeah. which, um, by the way, most likely, if, we're, if you're listening to this, you are part of the all nations category. And so yes. we should be very thankful that that's the way that salvation works. Um, and then John is told that they have endured great suffering and that they have been made spotless by the blood of the lamb. So really cool there. Uh, in chapter eight, the seventh seal is broken and it's a terrifying picture as all of heaven falls silent um, with the seven trumpets being handed out to seven angels. Um, so. Again, so imagine like there's all this calamity, not calamity, there's all this commotion. Um, the martyrs are crying out. John is looking out and he's seeing all of these all of these um, Gentiles who are worshiping the Lord from every nation. He's being declared that, there's, um, that they're spotless. And then all of a sudden the lamb breaks the seventh seal and then heaven just falls silent. Like again, we talked last week in Ezekiel about like just the uh, the, the glory of God departing Jerusalem. Um, this would be just be like terrifying. Like, okay, what is about to happen? And it says they fall silent. It's actually like I think it's for a half hour before um, before he breaks the seal, and then the Lamb breaks the seal, and seven trumpets 
are handed to seven angels, and each one sounds their trumpet individually. And with each trumpet sound, something happens. So the first angel sounds their trumpet, and hail, fire, and blood just fall from the sky. Uh, the second trumpet is sounded, and the sea turns to blood after a mountain of fire. Uh, after a fiery mountain is cast inside, it's like a mountain consumed with fire is ripped up, thrown into the sea, and then the sea turns to blood. Um, the third trumpet is sounded and a star falls from heaven and it pollutes all of the waters of the earth. Uh, the fourth trumpet is sounded and the sun and the moon and the stars are partly darkened. Uh, the fifth uh, trumpet is <coughs> sorry. The fifth trumpet is sounded and then smoke fills the earth. Um, and I put this nightmare comes out of it. So Matt, so I forgot what drops in. I should have written that down, but something drops. It's something is dropped into a pit and then smoke just comes out of it. It fills the whole of the earth, and then this comes out of the cloud. It says, in appearance, this is in Revelation chapter 9, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for the five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottom pit. His name is Hebrew, in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. So like, I mean, just, that is the most terrifying thing yes, I've ever. Like, absolutely. It, yeah, you're talking about like, these are like horse-sized locusts with the faces of, with human faces, lion's teeth, armored with stingers, and they have, like, and basically like a demon is leading over them. It's just like, Oh my sweet gosh. Like, this is insane. I guess I shouldn't say demon. I don't remember if a bad or Apollyon is. I think it is, though. I think it's. Anyway. I don't know. I shouldn't. That's open handed. Sorry. Uh, or God. I should say open handed. You just disrupted know. the entire podcast. Sorry, gang. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, and then the sixth trumpet is blown. Uh, and this one is four angels who have been bound in the Euphrates are unleashed to kill one third of mankind. Um, it kind of makes me think of, remember, Jeremiah is ca is called to go to the Euphrates and he buries his loincloth and it's, it's corrupted there. Which again, yep. uh, is, wait, was that Ezekiel or Jeremiah? I think that was Jeremiah. Was it Jeremiah? Okay. Yes. I'm getting them all, all mixed up in my head. Now. No, Ezekiel was the dung. Jeremiah That's was right. the loincloth. That's right. Um, and so you kind of get this picture. I could like, be wrong though. <laughs> yeah. You, you kind of get this picture like, okay, like this, this river is uh, special in that sense. It kind of represents a little bit of like downfall and corruption. So now we find out that there's these angels who are in the Euphrates um, and they are unleashed and they kill one third of mankind. Um, in chapter 10, again, we get a brief interlude. So just like I, it was the trumpets, that's what I was thinking of. So just like there was um, a pause between the sixth and the seventh seal being broken, there's a pause between the sixth and the seventh trumpets being sounded. Uh, first, John is commanded to eat a scroll as he will need to prophesy. And so this is where it kind of harkens back to Ezekiel. Remember, mm -hmm. at his call, uh, he is given a vision where he eats a scroll. And it's the word of God inside of him that he needs to preach. This is the same thing that happens to John. John is me, being given the word of God to internalize, and then he's going to have to preach it. Yeah. After this, God charges two witnesses with preaching his truth. And after 42 months, they are murdered. And so these are, if you've heard of the, the witnesses of Revelation, these are them, the two mm -hmm. witnesses. Um, we have no idea who they are. So they're just, they could just be angels. They could be men. I actually like, this is for what it's worth. I like the idea that they're Enoch and Elijah, uh, <laughs> just because in my head, it's like they're the only two people in the Bible who don't die. 
Yeah. And so there's something like, I don't know, there's something poetic about like hmm. God kind of saved their deaths for this moment. Yeah. So, but again, that's, that's totally like, open-handed, yeah, yeah. who knows, but this is something I like to think about. Um, and then finally the seventh trumpet is blown and this is in Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever, which that's pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and then, uh, and the 24 elders who sit there on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God almighty, who was and is, uh, who is, sorry, who is and who was for you have taken your great power and began and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and... Uh, the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of this covenant was seen within his temple. There was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy, heavy hail. And that's where we wrap up this week in Revelation. <laughs> so that's, and that's it. I actually jumped forward because if we actually ended in verse in chapter 10, but verse, chapter 11 is when the seventh trumpet is blown. I was like, we can't skip that part. And so, but yeah, seventh trumpet is blown. All of the people are rejoicing. Like here comes the judgment of the Lord. And then we will, uh, we will pick it up. We'll pick it up next week. So enjoy. <laughs> enjoy where we leave you. So uh, today or this week, we're also reading through the book of Hosea, uh, which is a minor prophet. But before we do, I do want to pause and uh, as usual, just simply ask if you are a uh, beloved listener uh, or if this is your first time listening to the podcast and you've enjoyed it so far. Even if you're not a beloved listener, if you're just one of the regular listeners. <laughs> no, if you listen to our podcast, you're a beloved listener. Okay. We love you dearly. Uh, I would just encourage you and just simply ask if you'd leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, uh, and, and preferably a five-star because that just helps the algorithms. It helps us continue to grow the community, uh, and it also c- continues to encourage us as we uh, spend time preparing and, and doing the work for the podcast. We appreciate our community of listeners. Um, I never would have thought I would have had a, been a part of a podcast as part of my repertoire, but uh, it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate each and every one of you. So we'd love for you to leave us a review uh, to do it today. Um, and I took my wife a couple years to get it, but she did it. So uh, we read that last or a couple weeks ago. This week, we are also reading through the entire book of Hosea. Uh, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit, I struggled a bit thinking we had already gone through this. So I was like, we're reading through it again. But I was reminded, and then I remembered it was a church. We've actually, we did a short series uh, this summer, I believe, or the end of summer into the fall. Yes. Through the book of Hosea. Uh, and so that's why a lot of this was very uh, fresh in my mind about it. Um, but Hosea is a minor prophet. Again, the, whether they're considered a major or minor prophet depends on length, determine, is determined by length, not actual status or position as a prophet. Uh, so Hosea, uh, who we actually know very little about, uh, but we do know his name means the Lord saves, uh, was a prophet uh, during the reign of Jeroboam, uh, who was in the northern kingdom of Israel and Uzziah in the southern kingdom. That's just kind of the timeline for us. Uh, it was also a very prosperous time for God's people, uh, which also then presented very, very much spiritual trouble. Uh, the people had adopted many of the religious practices of those nations around them and no longer worshiped God alone. Go figure. Um, this is a classic, classic Israel move. Yes. Oh well, yeah, God, we love you. And we love other things. Yeah. Well, we talked about like, it's weird. It's a weird time because it's, um, it's Jeroboam the second, which mm-hmm. is like, the Assyrians, they're kind of off doing their own thing. It's peace peace on earth for a little bit. 
Israel's doing really good. They're prospering. They're getting some land back. And then they're still sacrificing the idols like a bunch of scumbags. Yeah. Like they just can't get over it. Well, and that's a problem, right? When there's prosperity, there's complacency, unfortunately, because you don't feel the angst or the need to fully rely on God which then lands itself to, to allow you to rely on other things. True. So, Well, I don't know if the Northern Kingdom of Israel ever felt the need to rely on That's God. fair. That's fair. Uh, so anyways, prosperous time. Uh, Hosea was called to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And there is some speculation about this. I actually forgot about this, even though, even though we did the series about whether Gomer became a prostitute after she married Hosea or if she was a prostitute when Hosea married her. Uh, because there's some modern day tension of why would God call someone to marry someone who's already promiscuous? Um, does he not value marriage? But the reality that we know about God, his ways are not our ways. And and the 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 Hebrew language that was used actually implies and reveals that Gomer was a prostitute before Hosea married her. Um, and it is. It's a big deal. Yeah, um, you know, if it worked out for Samson. <laughs> That worked out, right? <laughs> Samson, Lila, that was a good... But to be clear, God did not call Samson to marry Delilah, okay? Um, so Hosea was called to marry Gomer. Uh, so she was a prostitute at the time. After they were married, he, she committed adultery against him. Um, he suffered. And I thought this was really important to remember. Like, a prophet's life was not all, like, wonderful. We know that having gone through Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and, and all these other prophets, the minor prophets that we walked through, it wasn't, but he was also human. Uh, and so one of the books that I, I was kind of working through just reminded, like, he suffered the agony of jealousy, of betrayal, of humiliation, and of shame. Uh, and, and it says this, as yet, yet as those around him laughed, Hosea prophesied. And I love that line for Hosea because what he was called to do was so far out of our comprehension and even understanding, God, what are you doing? But at the end of the day, he was obedient and he prophesied while he was facing humiliation, while he was facing the, the agony of betrayal, um, because his marriage was used as a symbol of Israel, and Israel was God's wife and was just like Gomer. Uh, you'll see a few major themes in the book of, of Hosea. You'll see spiritual adultery. You'll see knowledge of God, and you'll see God's frustrated love. Um, if I'm going to give you a quick outline, it breaks down into five sections, Hose, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 5, Hosea's family, a comparison to God's family. Chapter 4, verse 1 to five fifteen. you see God t- takes Israel to court. There's this, this legal verbiage. Uh, chapter 6, Verse 1 to 11, 11, you see Hosea's invitation tarnished is tarnished by the reality that is going on with Israel. Uh, 11, verse 12 to 13, 16, God's final judgment or final arguments against Israel. And then 14, you see the possibility of restoration. So I want to break down these sections for us real quick as we launch into reading the book of Hosea. Uh, the first section here of Hosea's family or God's family, you'll see that God will command Hosea to marry Gomer. Uh, Hosea and Gomer have three children with symbolic names that that are warning of Israel's coming judgment. Uh, Jezreel alluded to the place where Assyria would have a very definitive victory over Israel. Lu Rahama, it means not pitied, ind- indicated that God wouldn't pity Israel anymore. Lo Ami means not my people. Uh, and so that's the third child. And in essence, it's, it's the point... It's the pointed statement of the coming separation between God and Israel. Uh, there's still a ray of hope in here because God promises to restore Israel uh, for his very own. Uh, this is displayed by Gomer being taken back by Hosea uh, af- after she abandoned him and she became the property of another. Uh, we see this in chapter 3, verse 1 through 20. It says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go show, go again, show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raising cakes. I think this is such a powerful picture where you see God's redemptive tension 
um, and redemptive heart and love for people. He's saying Gomer, or he's saying, Hosea, go pick up Gomer. Um, she she abandoned him in their marriage. She became the property of another man. And he says, go back and show love to this woman. And so it says in verse two, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not become a promiscuous, be promiscuous or belong to any man. I will act the same way towards you. For the Israelites must live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with all to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. I just love that hope in the midst of prostitution, like the idea of serving other gods, of rebelling against God, being owned by someone else. God uses Hosea's marriage to be a representation of, of his redemptive love. You'll see in, in chapter four, this in chapter five, God takes Israel to court. The language here is what suggests there's a, God bringing a legal dispute against Israel because they have not upheld their end of the covenant agreement, which is historically accurate. Um, Hosea declares that the Israelites do not really know God, which in turn led them to sin and then would in turn bring judgment. Um, and many in this moment hope that Assyria would save them. But Hosea tells everyone that God can't, or that everyone that Assyria can't save them from God's wrath. Um, you you shift into, you'll see chapter six where Hosea invites them to return to God, but it's really tarnished by the, by the reality of the Israelite people. Um, he invites them to return uh, to know him more intimately, but he's ignored. They rebel and think God is, does not see their sin, but the reality is God sees everything. Uh, it reminds me of that sticker uh, of Jesus popping and saying, I saw that. Um, <laughs> the leader, uh, the leadership of the Israelite people didn't consult with the Lord. Israel's harlotry was both religious and political uh, by forsaking God and worshiping other gods um, and politically for asking other nations help. So there's this idea of a rebelling harlotry, I'm going to go worship other gods, but I'm also going to seek other nations to bring uh, freedom. They're going to bring victory, help re- redeem us and get us safe and provide for us. He's asking other nations to do that rather than God. And so then Hosea will compare Israel to four things in this section. Uh, the first is a bunch of choice grapes in the wilderness that had spoiled. That's a really fun picture. Uh, like a vine that grew according to its own plant, choosing God, uh, choosing her own way instead of God's way. Uh, which is heartbreaking. Uh, You see the comparison of Israel was a trained heifer uh, who loved to thresh grain because she could, she could eat what she threshed. She could do her, do whatever she wants. See, it's funny when people compare me to a trained heifer, (laughs) I tend to be a little bit more offended, but this slightly offended. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And then finally, like a toddling son. And we see this in, in Hosea chapter 11 verses one through 11. Uh, this is the comparison that's made. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians, even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning of offering to idols. It was I who brought, who taught Ephraim to walk, talking them, taking them by the hand, but they never knew that I, I healed them. I led them with human cords, with ropes of love. To them, I was like the one who eases the yoke from their jaws. I bent down to give them food. Israel, Israel will not return to the land of Egypt and Assyria will, will be his king because they refuse to repent. A sword will whirl through his cities. It will destroy and devour the bars of his gates because of their schemes. My people are bent on turning from me. Though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How do I treat you like Zeboam? I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. 
I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. I love that line. I am not man. I'm the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. Verse 10 says, they will, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will be roused like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. Then I will settle them in their homes. This is the Lord's declaration. And I just love that, again, you see this redemptive narrative and this heartbeat of God's love and care and provision for his people. Uh, and you see this as a, in the different comparisons that Hosea brings in this in this portion of the book. Uh, you'll see in chapter 11, verses, or verse 12 to 13, 16, God's final arguments against Israel. Uh, and Hosea uses Israel's history as a lesson to teach and encourage them to seek the Lord. It refers to Jacob resting with God. It refers to a couple of examples from the Old Testament. Um, but they did not follow the example set before them. Therefore, God's judgment will be swift. God will remove the king and Samaria, which is the northern kingdom capital, will fall very hard. And then we see in chapter 14, verse 1 through 9, uh, the possibility of restoration. Uh, and uh, I'll read this. And then share a couple of thoughts. Um, it says, Israel, verse one of chapter 14, Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your, in your iniquity. Take the words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to work for, to work for our hands. For the fatherless receives compassion in you. I will hear their apostasy. I will freely love them, for my anger will, have, anger will have turned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily and take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread, and his splendor will be like the old olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow grain and blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the wine of Lebanon. Ephraim, why should I have anything more to do with idols? It is I who watch over, it is I who answer and watch over him. I am like a flourishing pine tree. Your fruit comes from me. Let whoever is wise understand these things. Whoever is insightful, recognize them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. And so these are the last words of Hosea. And you get this, you get that despite the scathing rebuke, there's still hope for restoration. God will call them to repent and acknowledge that God alone can provide for their needs. Um, and it's in God, in return, God promised to heal them and, and be a blessing. Uh, I love the, the visuals you get there where Israel flourished like the vine, like the blossom, like the lily that take root, like the trees of the Lebanon, which the Lebanon trees were like this massive forest that was very uh, bountiful, very, uh, uh, it's, it's a great sign of wealth. You see those throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it's one of the things like, I want the trees from the Lebanon for, or the Lebanon wood. And, um, but the, the possibility of restoration as they return to see God, Hosea, this is the picture that Hosea walks through and communicates and lives out with his marriage. You see God's redemptive intent for rebellious and, I guess, promiscuous uh, people. Uh, so that's where Hosea ends. You end with a, a very positive, uplifting note of God's provision and faithfulness. So that's what we're reading this week. Oh, man. I, it's so funny. Like you said, I, I thought we had covered Hosea already, and then you remember. So I think Mike is the last minor prophet that we haven't covered yet. Oh, it's so. coming. Oh. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Micah. 
I don't know why I said that like that. I don't know either. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. Um, As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we are not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day and happy Thanksgiving.